I'm Ravi Bhavala, and on the show today, how Robert Miller went from door-knocking local businesses for $250 digital marketing contracts to building a system that creates eight-figure e-commerce brands like Clockwork. It's safe to say everyone listening to this video probably understands the power of e-commerce in today's society, how easy it has made our everyday lives. But many of you don't know that some of the largest brands you use, Movement Watches, Warby Parker, Dollar Shave Club, were all started by just one or two people from their home computer. What if I told you that there was a formula for creating massively successful e-commerce companies online? Well, that's exactly what our guest today, Robert Miller, does. Having worked with some of the largest e-commerce companies of our generation, Robert builds and partners with e-commerce brands to take them to multiple seven and even eight figures for an exit. Now, Robert's from a blue-collar town in California and started his online career door-knocking local businesses for $250 digital marketing contracts. Realizing very quickly these deals weren't going to get him out of his small town, he applied to work at Cardone Kern, an advertising agency owned by the digital marketing legends Frank Kern and Grant Cardone, where he went almost overnight from managing $5,000 a month in advertising spend to hundreds of thousands of dollars a month. It was here that he rose the ranks and really started to understand how to scale a brand online, how to leverage influencer marketing, and the secret strategies that he exposes in this episode that allow him to turn almost any decent e-commerce brand into one that is seeing 300% month-over-month growth primed for an exit. Welcome to the Ravi Abuvala Show, where we show you how you can build a business that produces cash without you so you can live the life you deserve. So you're one of the top three guys uh, working with Frank Kern inside the Kern Cardone kind of advertising agency, managing hundreds of thousands of dollars a month in advertising spend. How do you go from that to then uh, starting and launching your own business at that point? Yes. Yeah, so at that time, not only was I managing that amount of money and working with a bunch of different clients, I was also full time in college, full time in school. So I was working 4 a.m. to basically 12 a.m. every single day. And I eventually, after about seven to eight months, I got burnt out. And I said, I had to change. I've understood the skill set. I had the skill set to build an agency and run it. And it was time for me to just branch off on my own, reduce the stress tremendously, and focus on the clients that I can serve best. What gave you the confidence to be like, all right, I'm going to come? Is it because you had been the, doing the door knocking before and now you knew how to do the actual fulfillment side? So you're like, cool, if I know sales, I know fulfillment, I might as well do this myself? Well, I, during that time, I was giving out free value. I was creating content online. And so I built a little bit of a following. And so I had a couple clients that I can fall back in, but it was probably one of the scariest transitions. I also almost quit marketing entirely because I was so burnt out. So I gave it one last go. I remember telling myself, like, if this doesn't work out, you can always go back to an agency and get another job. Like there's plenty of them out there, but you just bet on yourself and really try and go for it. And so that's what I did. And during that time, it was just perfect timing. There was the 10X uh, event happening. There's a couple of masterminds I went to. 
and it just snowballed. And so the network effect really started to happen with the compounding of me meeting new people, me putting myself out there, but with the skill set, the credibility that I got. And then how do you go from, okay, I'm this uh, freelancer, essentially agency owner, roughly, uh, to now running your own business? What did that transition look like? Yeah. So that transition for me, once I learned the skill set, I read a book called Traction by Gina Wickman. It was Great recommended. Book. Yeah, it was recommended by a good friend of mine. And that changed the way that I looked at process, business, team structure. And then alongside that, there's a, a specific page, I have a screenshot of it on my phone from the book Principles by Ray Dalio. And it's how organizations are structured. It's a very, it's just one page in the book, but it's a very profound uh, when you, when you match that with the book Traction on how it's actually built out at scale. And I thought that was really interesting. And for me to build that, I had to let go of my ego and let go of the skill set that I had built an identity in and actually transition that and train people and learn that whole process and transition out of that. Nice. And so what is the business that you're running right now? How do you service people? Like what's your offer? Yeah. So right now we actually build DTC e-commerce brands for our clients. So I've worked with entrepreneurs. I've worked with many different e-commerce brands and we've seen different levels of scale. We've scaled brands from six to seven, even seven to eight. And we even work with nine figure brands. And typically as they ascend through that model, there's uh, different breaking points or different levels in e-commerce revenue that tend to then require different investments into content or different teams. And when you have an agency relationship, it typically has friction at each one of those points instead of focusing on the same growth and the same mission, uh, or at least you have to remind your client about that. And so what we did, because there's a lot of other people out there that are selling marketplace automation, uh, we went and said, hey, let's go D2C and let's do a D2C automation company where we build brands and we actually sell directly through Facebook, TikTok, and Instagram for people. So in essence, it's a Shopify automation model, but the main thing is that we've seen the scale of what it takes to get to seven and eight figures with the e-commerce brands. So we're able to forward invest and project where and how to send that model and send that story. So obviously everybody, actually, I'm not going to say obviously everybody because I'm trying not to make assumptions. Actually, I would probably say a lot of people have not heard of the automation world that you know we know of. And I've obviously had a few clients in. But the idea behind it is like, hey, you make an initial upfront investment into this uh, you know, Amazon store, Shopify store, um, Walmart store, Facebook marketplace store, and it pays you back a dividend of you know whatever that company is generating on a monthly basis. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. Okay. And then once uh, I, I've seen these come and go left and right, and we're going to kind of talk about where you're at and, and, and some of the bottlenecks maybe you guys are having, but I see it go left and right. And one of the biggest things that I see is um, this store gets shut down or they're doing drop shipping. So like what makes you guys so certain that you're building a brand to last and what you're doing versus what a lot of these other kind of fly by night guys are doing? Yeah, great question. So I actually used to market a lot of these guys. I would run their Facebook ads, their Instagram ads. And so I've seen them blow up and then blow out because they weren't focused on operations. They weren't focused on you know systems or they weren't focused on the actual product. They were just outsourcing it. And that's not a business. And that's why you see these fly by night people. Now for us, what makes us different is that yes we start out with drop shipping but the efficiency of doing that then helps solidify brand so the different tiers of revenue then allow us to actually make different adjustments to the store and it just gives that person a progression through creating a brand so what i mean by that is the zero to 30k in revenue with a shopify store is just validating the offer and validating where you're going when you figure that out when you have that process down the next tier is 30 to 80k per month now if you get to 80k per month the investments now become more brand related 
investing in the packaging, investing into more custom content. And that's how you transcend. In fact, one of our brands now is pushing about $2.6 million a year, started about a year ago, went through the whole Ascension model. And the reason why we're able to do that is because we were an agency prior and we saw where the bottlenecks were with all the different clients at different levels of scale. And so we start to focus on really seasoning the accounts um, and really scaling them up because when you see automation companies in a marketplace, you don't get data and they can change the rules at any time. When you work with Shopify, and this is typically why most people go D2C, is that you own the data. So you can get repeat purchases if a channel goes down like Facebook or TikTok, whatever the case is. And so that's what allows them to maneuver a bit easier instead of being locked up and now the person is out their investment or the person is out the funds that are in the platform. I really love that process. And then honestly, it's kind of a lot of the stuff that we teach inside scaling with systems, which is like, you know, almost sell before you create. So if you're a business owner and you're trying to scale a business online, having a brand is massive and having like full end to end ownership of the product, the ads, everything is incredible for you to be able to scale. But it kind of removes the nimbleness in the very beginning that's required in order to find that product market fit, which it sounds like kind of what you're doing from zero to 30 K It's like, Hey, although the brand is how we're going to retain you on Amazon or Shopify, or whatever it's in the very beginning, we almost need to kind of just throw a bunch of stuff out there and see what sticks. And then whatever does stick, we build a brand brand around that one product. Is that correct? Very, very close. So we have a lot of data. I mean, we've seen many different offers. And so our product research process is pretty damn great because we have not only the D2C angle, but we're not just looking at metrics of is this product actually moving? We look at how is this going to create additional value or how can it have perceived value? Because that's where with Amazon or with Walmart, you see the margins start to cram down because it's the products that people are buying every single day. There's no differentiating factor of buying a table or buying you know, some sort of household good. So when we look at different products, we want to figure out the angle and how we're going to address the market with it. And that's what makes us different. And that's why my partners, they do a great job of identifying the product, but then seeing how we can package that and actually build perceived value. Because the main metrics that you look for in e-commerce are your cost per acquisition is going to be basically fixed. Like it's going to be there depending on your product cost. Your next thing is your AOV, your average order value. So how much are they spending with you and how can we drive that up with perceived value or additional things onto the cart? And then lastly is your lifetime value, which is how many times are they buying from you, which with Shopify, you can do that really easily with fa- uh, with Facebook ads, with email and SMS and other ways to retarget your current base. And are you like, what's your typical, because I, I have a lot of people that watch this uh, that are marketers or advertisers, they're nerds like us. So like, what's your typical upfront cash return on investment when you guys are running ads? And is it, so you're scaling these things typically through ads? Is that what I'm, I'm assuming? Yeah, so it's brand? typically through ads. In the beginning, I mean, I would say our first one to two months is a lot of testing. So typically it's break even or you're making a bit maybe a couple thousand dollars on the front end. But really, it's just validating those KPIs. We have a 300-point checklist that we look for on the store. We have about 120 tasks that we do for the advertising side and how we look at things. So if it hits those KPIs and we see different things, our first goal is to hit that $30,000 per month as a KPI. Because the secret is once you get to $30,000 a month, it's very easy to go to eighty to $90,000 a month. It's not hard at all. You've already validated the offer. You probably just need more custom content or the guts to spend more. Right. And so that's where, you know, the capital lines come into play and the the structure of the account. As long as the accounts have been seasoned, there's no problem with scaling it up to 90K, 80 to 90K per month pretty quickly. In fact, when we were working as an agency with a lot of different brands or the companies that I've worked with, I mean, we've scaled brands from 80K to 1.5 million in three months. So it's not hard to do it once you have the offer validated. It's just a matter of knowing what to do once you hit those KPIs and what the data is telling you. Got it. And who is the typical segment that you're working with? Is it because I 
I think we're going to start talking about the bottlenecks here in a moment, but is the segment someone that's just looking to start an e-commerce business so that they can have something that fuels their passion or their drive or something like that? Or is are you helping other D2C brands grow into a massive multiple six, multiple seven, multiple eight figure? So we have two different main target audiences. The first one is more so of an investor profile in which they want exposure to e-commerce in their portfolio. They don't want to do the Amazon marketplace route because of all the rules that happen with that. And they don't want to just invest into a stock like Shopify or Amazon. They want direct to consumer exposure. And you can't typically get that unless you're working with an e-commerce aggregator, which is typically private equity and other funds associated with that. So our niche is really working with you know real estate investors, other business owners that understand uh, not only the time horizon of it, but also our long-term mindset of this is to have a portfolio of e-commerce brands that are not only cash flowing, we can control revenue, but we can introduce different products and even sell these uh, stores down the road. So it's it's more of a long-term play. We're not here just for a year to two years. We really want to extend this out to three to five because the progression model of the buyer on the buy side that we have, uh, we can package these up to be sell side ready, which means that when we go to sell the brand, we already have hedge funds or other companies that are ready to buy these and we're already getting bids on them already. So it's really to farm these brands to then hand them off to the next buyer. Awesome. And then so for the people inside of here that are listening and watching this and uh, they're in similar industries or uh, potentially trying to model after a successful business like yours, what is right now, you guys, I know are crushing it inside your space. I was checking out your website, the case studies, testimonials you guys have, but what would you say is like the biggest bottleneck for your guys' growth right now? What's preventing you guys from hitting the next level and being able to service more people doing this exact same thing? Well, I think it's three things. One is always fulfillment as you grow and as you scale, we're not taking on debt. We're not feeling the growth other ways. We really want to structure out our teams and our pods properly to then be able to handle more bandwidth. So that's always the first thing. And that's with every automation business or any agency, really, you have to bring on more backend service and overhead in order to fulfill. So that's the first thing. Second thing I would say is really the sales systems. Uh, it's been primarily just myself or my partner, John, working on the sales side. And we have an expertise in marketing. So it's a little bit different of a sale versus a traditional sale or the sales system. They're buying me because of the brand. They're buying me because of the videos that I'm on versus the sales team that's positioning or posturing it a little bit differently. So that can definitely be improved. And then the third thing is also we're not here just to ramp up, just to ramp up. We really want to focus on the deliverability of each one of the checkpoints and brands. And the biggest thing that I think we've been doing a great job at the, with the fulfillment side is bringing on creative directors and bringing on people that can extend the angles and the ideas instead of it being bottlenecked inside of the people. So it's it's typically a person, you know, bandwidth on that standpoint. There is some system stress that happens, then also the sales side. Got it. So I, I, I love sales. I love marketing. I love automations on the sales process side. And we typically talk about that. But I've obviously worked with a few dozen people in the exact same industry you're in right now. And what we were talking about right before the camera started rolling is when you guys have a great offer as great as you guys do right now, and you have the case studies and success that you have, typically, the only reason you're not scaling is not the marketing and sales side It's because you literally can't take on more customers right now. Mm-hmm. So like, in the fulfillment side of things, specifically, like why if I brought you let's say 20 new people that were ready to onboard today like why would you guys not be able to do it where is the breakage in that process so there's about 120 tasks that we do just on the back end to set up an account so it takes about a month month and a half and so on that process there's a lot of uh, logistics of connecting with the clients and stuff like that our onboardings are pretty streamlined there's onboarding forms systems associated with that 
but the time horizon of getting them from that onboarding form to completion of the product does take a lot of different steps and that's where we can be more more efficient we use project management systems and things like that but we can definitely condense that time frame to then have not a backlog if we brought on 20 people that'll extend out that time frame maybe by two or three more weeks so it's really the fulfillment of the back-end setup it's not as simple as creating you know an amazon listing and uploading a csv file of products it's you have to create the angle you have to create the product uh landing pages and actually market and position it a bit differently and that can all be custom depending on the brand or how we're wanting to build it out so a little bit longer in the design process but it's that four to six week time frame that we're building things out that's probably the biggest bottleneck where we can make efficiency yeah i see that happening a lot in your industry and do you guys have client success managers right now or is it like one client success manager for a few dozen clients or what does it look like who's that person's main point of contact whenever they go so we have two uh we have one client success manager that's fully client success manager uh the other one um, has trained her up and so she actually helps fulfill on some of that she's actually one of the heads of logistics so she's been with us for about a year and a half now and so um, she's been shouldering both logistics and infrastructure of the negotiating with suppliers and getting those rates down and actually connecting into our stores as well as CSM. So we can definitely you know, have a better experience on the customer service side. I think every business can and there's always levels to it. So we definitely need some better CSM as well as the uh, just the process and transparency. We have done uh, courses to help give the clients a bridge and a deliverable between uh, that and the final product, but we could definitely improve that. that yeah, process. that's actually one thing that I wanted to touch on. And this is great for people that do also have uh, issues in the onboarding or at, le- at least bottlenecks in the onboarding process is obviously time from when they pay you to when they have the thing actually working is like critical. Mm-hmm. You know, I always compare it to when you go to a restaurant, the the, mo- the longest time perceived in that person's mind is not necessarily waiting for the food. Uh, and it's not even waiting for the check. It's actually when you sit down to when the first time someone speaks with you, because that could literally feel like an eternity. And that's the first experience that you have. When I go to a restaurant and it's been like five minutes after I sat down and nobody has come and talked to me, I'll typically get up and walk out of the restaurant at that point, right? Because you just feel like, okay, if I'm starting the service off this way, mm-hmm. what is the rest of the experience going to be like, which is why like inside scaling with systems, a lot of the systems that we put up in place are automations in order to do that original touch point and get that onboarding form done. But one really great thing that we've done is like, as soon as someone closes, a salesperson puts it inside, I know you were saying you're using close IO, they put it inside a deal closed activity form. And then that will actually slack into our client success channel. And then we have one of our client success managers, whoever's managing that pick up the phone and dial them immediately. So it's like, Another big issue that I see even in your industry is the person that's doing the sales a lot of times is also doing some of the onboarding and the communication is still happening between that original person. So like having a deals close activity and then sending it into Slack to that customer success manager who within five minutes picks up the phone and is like, Robert, I just saw that you joined. Like, I'm incredibly excited for you to be here uh, just to let you know these are the next steps. I need this on your uh, onboarding form done. And a lot of the times, whatever is kind of that sticky point that in the Mm -hmm. onboarding form, like I know for you guys, sometimes it's like getting the LLC set up or getting something approved or getting this document or getting, they'll do that on that welcome call there. Because I think if you looked at that hundred plus, you know, step thing that you do, there's maybe some things that are step 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, and they take like two to three weeks to get done that if we started that literally on day one, it would shorten that process from close to fulfillment. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, on that CS point, I actually saw one of your videos that talked about it. We actually implemented that, but we haven't implemented the call fully yet, but at least the system to do so. So I think those are the things that just are giving me better insight on how to have better customer service. And I think that's a great point that we want to definitely implement. And, and you already are doing a lot of this stuff. And like, I can tell you care about your clients and it's like a few things inside 
of here that I think would be beneficial as well. So let's say uh, in that 100 plus point checklist, you said you give them a course. So we implement the thing where someone picks up the phone, they call them, they get the onboarding form done, or they tell them to get the onboarding form. First of all, how long is that onboarding doc? Do you have one? Uh, yeah, the form? onboarding doc probably takes about 10 minutes for them to fill out. Okay, got it. And do, is it like every single time someone joins, they fill out that onboarding form same day? Or is it they have to wait a few days? Or what's that typical process? So as soon as someone uh, comes on board, the deal closes, the sales rep fills out a form fills out the, the deal amount, who closed it, if it was a referral or not. And that shows in the system as well. So it's just an external submission when that submission happens and then goes through all these different software. So it'll go to Kajabi, it'll go to Slack, it'll update the deal and pipeline and close, it'll update stuff in Panadoc and just fill all that information in. But it's that point of entry that then triggers all like nine different options. But does someone fill that out as soon as they join or do you see a lag between when someone joins and when they fill out? Oh, there's a little bit of a lag typically because, you know, myself or John and I are actually doing these sales uh, where we are on and on these other calls. So we may do it by the end of the day and that email goes out to them and then we'll just shoot them a text saying, hey, we filled the onboarding form congratulations just fill that out and then you're good to go nice uh, another real uh, and i get because you guys are doing uh, sales calls as well and then you're trying to trigger it out one of the best things that we also did and you guys may be doing something like this automated proposal sending software so that when like i close a deal with you on the phone we send the proposal to you i sign it then i'm on to my next sales call when you sign that proposal, it will automatically trigger a text message and an email with the onboarding form with it. So oh, that right. way that I'm not wait, you're not waiting for me because that's one of the biggest mistakes I see is like, okay, you're waiting until the end of the day for to get that that proposal sent to me. So we've created, we use PandaDoc, but there's a bunch out there like DocuSign. We use the same. Nice. So you can put it inside of there. So PandaDoc, it has, uh, and we actually have an instructional video embedded in the PandaDoc of me talking, explaining what the next steps are. Because I think clarity every step of the way is just massive. Massive. And if we can put that on an automation and embed it in a video, then you don't have to be explaining it. But PandaDoc with the video explaining, hey, if you're reading this right now, congratulations, you've been extending an offer to join our company. Once you sign this proposal, you're going to get a text message within five minutes of the onboarding form. Nothing can happen until you complete that onboarding form. And uh, if you don't complete the onboarding form, we won't be able to take the next step. So make sure you fill out the onboarding form. And then once you fill out the onboarding form, then which I'll talk about in a second, you'll book your onboarding call. So my sales team will literally finish the sales call with five minutes left until the next sales call, open up PandaDoc, send the document out, and then they can hop on the next sales call with full uh, confidence that that client is going to be taken care of because they know that that will trigger the cascade of the rest of the client success. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, like it's that. pretty it's pretty wild how quickly that will transition the experience for that person and you're not bottlenecking that process and the nice thing is we're relying on automations and we're not relying on hiring other people exactly are you on the page with all that yeah I'm totally okay on the page. and then the other great thing do you guys have onboarding calls or no so our onboarding calls, no, we typically don't do onboarding calls. so another really great thing especially in the automation world like these are all little things that I just sometimes like, man, I should start an automation company because if you guys added a few of these things inside of here, you would just, everybody else, like you said, in this world is just so fly by night. And I know you guys aren't that. And so adding these few little like nice touch points can just make this whole process so much smoother. Even if you kept your uh, fulfillment, like still 30 days or 45 days until it gets up. If you do some of these things and there's communication between both of them, we like to call it uh, leadership service versus react, uh, reaction service, meaning like you are taking charge and saying, here's how things are going versus most, because I actually had two Amazon stores and a Walmart store and I did not have great experiences with them. <laughs> Me too. Yeah, so like, and every time I'm messaging the person, what's going on, where are we at? Like, how do I, instead of them messaging me and giving me updates. So another really great thing that I love to do is as soon as someone pays you money, 
their next step is fill out the onboarding form. If their next step after that is to wait until you say something or wait until you guys are ready, once again, they're going to be antsy and they're going to be like, what are next steps? What are next steps? Which is not great in their brain. And that's like you get to the restaurant and you're waiting for that person to come to the table. So another thing that we did was we implemented as soon as they fill out the onboarding form, they're automatically redirected to a Calendly page, which will then be their onboarding call. So have one of your client success managers uh, create an event type and it's for onboarding calls. You can actually make it for ours. It's 24 hours in advance. So that gives us time to review the person's application, understand where they're at so we can come to the call with something. But within 24 hours, if they know the next step is for them is to show up to this meeting, it makes it very clear for them as far as like clarity on action steps once they pay the money. And then you or the sales team could say, great, you're gonna sign this proposal, you're gonna get your onboarding form, you fill that out, and then you're gonna be redirected about your onboarding call. Once you get on your onboarding call, we're going to cover all of the next steps from there. And so it just gives them almost like a little bread tr- uh, breadcrumb trail for them to follow in order to know exactly where the next steps are and for them to have confidence that you guys are going to be with them every step of the way. You're on the same page with all that? Yeah. Of okay, cool. And then before I, I, I'm going to get some feedback from you in a moment on that onboarding call. A lot of people make the mistake, like number one, they kind of wishy-washy it and they're just like free balling it. And number two, they just assume the sale, which means they're like, hey, uh, here are the next things you need to do. A lot of times, just like you had an advertising agency uh, with 400 plus clients, a lot of times you have to resell the client on expectations, what they bought into and um, what the next steps are. So even if you guys took a minute to create like a, a, a Google Slides presentation or something along those lines and just being like, hey, welcome to the family. You join because you want one of these things here. This is the expected time until you get it. These are the exact next steps. And then they open the floor for any questions. And you are now increasing the perceived value by adding little um, personal touch points that really, relatively speaking to what you guys, I'm sure, charge because you guys offer an awesome service is so nominal inside what you guys really charge that has the perceived see value of like $10,000, $20,000, $30,000, because you guys are taking charge of the client journey, like fulfillment journey. Absolutely. Yeah. And are you guys doing like once the onboarding call, let's say we put the onboarding call in place. Um, who's what's like the main communication channels and touch points you guys are doing with the client, like in order to get the things on that, like hundred plus thing checklist. Yeah. So the checklist is actually internal. So those are all the tests that we do on our side. Once the client fills out the onboarding form is really hands off for them. There's like two steps that they do past that. So when, uh, our, our communication channels are slack and then if there's any issues, uh, typically our call, our rep will actually call them. Uh, but we do have for other, you know, crazy, you know, situations or things that are one off or weird questions. We have a request form uh, that the client could actually fill out. They can do a loom video. They can do a description. If it's a marketing issue, a finances issue or whatever the case is, they can submit that form and give us a lot more perspective into what's going on uh, if it's anything severe. So touch points on that. Then we typically may give them a call if we see that request and we say, hey, what's going on? Let's try and figure it out. If we can't figure it out over just doing Slack communications. Got it. Is, is the Slack where all your clients are and your company is inside of that as well? Yeah, so they're two separate... Nice uh, workspaces? Yeah, yeah, not two separate workspaces, two separate channels that we currently have. Okay. Oh, so all your clients are in one channel? No, no, no. So they, each client has their own channel. Got it. And then we have duality with that. So a client channel and an internal facing channel. And we just separate them into different sections. Ah, uh, okay. All right. Uh, that would give me a heart attack to have all like uh, that many channels in one workspace. We actually have um, inside Scaling Initiative, we have a, a, a Slack uh, workspace for Scaling Initiative clients. And then we have a 
company workspace because we have you know there's hundreds of channels between each of them but uh i love that what you guys are doing slack and i love slack and i like client communication in slack we actually are now rolling it out for our scaling with systems clients we're starting to do slack with them as well just makes the communication so much easier between both people so that's freaking awesome that you guys are doing it i think that what also could be another really great way to because like you said it's really hands off and I, i know that you guys are doing done for you automation and so that's incredible but you have to keep in mind at least from my experience you bought multiple amazon stores i bought multiple amazon stores it's like that whole waiting process in between of like all right i paid the money and when does this thing get set up and there's like not a lot of transparency inside of it one of the first guys i worked in this industry he came to me and he wanted to, he was ready to spend half a million dollars on um an as software he wanted to build an app that's like the domino's app that shows you when you order a pizza these are the different stages in it yeah. we built out something that for like a thousand dollars so we saved him a lot of money but i kind of think that would be a great idea for you guys is if you once they did the onboarding call you could literally walk through and this is something that you could give them in the course but like the roadmap to a completed store and it's like first you submit the onboarding form then you have the onboarding call then we do this then we do that so you guys having that 100 point checklist internally is awesome and i do understand some of it might be proprietary stuff that you guys don't want to share with all your clients but even just a watered down version that you'd be able to give your clients in order to have them be able to see okay, we're on this stage, we're on this stage. And then having your client success manager uh, giving updates inside the Slack channel every two days, every three days, every five days of what stage you guys are at, what you're waiting on. I think a lot of times that will calm down a lot of the people that are like, because you can set all the expectations in the world on the sales call, but people still, nothing ever happens as fast as people want them to. Yeah. So having that like, hey, we're doing this, we're working on this, we're submitting this. And actually our SOP is our client's desk manager has to do a touch point at least once every two days to them. And a lot of times it could just be updates of the process along the way. That's really smart. Yeah. It, it kind of keeps the the client and the client success manager on the same page with everything. And in my personal experience, you can never really over communicate what's going on but you most people under communicate what's going on so even if you know i actually talk about this with our team i purchased i'm sure you know hyros um but I, when yeah. i originally purchased hyros with alex becker i had a, an account manager with him and this guy literally sent me a facebook message every single day and asked how i was doing and how i could help him and i'm never on facebook and i never responded but finally like after 40 days after literally 40 different messages of how i was doing I finally needed something and it was clear what the communication channel that I needed was it. And I also, during that entire 40 days, I felt that they had my back in case anything went on because this person's checking on me on a daily basis. And that is for a software that's like a few hundred dollars a month, right? Because he knows the value that that has a lifetime, uh, the impact that has in lifetime value of the customer. So for you guys, when you guys have a higher ticket price point like you guys do right now, I think that would be pretty freaking massive on uh, keeping people around longer and then also potentially having those people ask for referrals from your current clients in order for them to send other people that want like more DTC brand stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Damn. That's, uh, that, that's how I would, the rough, like what major changes I would make in the process. I can't go too deep into the, uh, like, uh, you know, hundred point checklist. Cause I know that's your guys, like probably your secret sauce and I respect that. And I love that you guys do it as well. But, um, once the store is up and running, like how, what, what's the communication with the client look like at that point? How does like, is it just like, Hey, things are up and running. Is there weekly check-ins? Is there monthly check-ins? How does that Yeah. Work? So there's weekly check-ins and part of uh, getting to that first $30,000 a month, there's that weekly touch in saying, Hey, this is what we're doing. This is the new content and similar to just how an agency typically runs. So we have that process down in which we're communicating those updates. There's different statuses from the media buying team, content team, and they continue to shoulder some of those updates to then give to the client, right? Once you get to about 30 K plus per month, then we start layering on a lot of the reporting dashboards that 
just costs additional money for softwares and things like that for them it makes it actually becomes worth it because then they're able to see all their costs they're able to see all their uh, returns they're able to have all the api sync across all the different platforms so now they have a really comprehensive dashboard they can look at those reports anytime that they want and we just continue to communicate those updates as we refer to the dashboard and as we refer to other things that are happening internally that's awesome dude i love that we're big dashboard people in our company so i'm a, like a big big fan of dashboards that's awesome that you guys build that out um and then like so so is the person like the everyday investor that's on there are they like looking at the dashboards every single day do you feel like or are they just like checking in whenever they want to some people do like? some people don't i mean even just downloading the shopify app for some individuals that aren't tech savvy is a bit much right so we we want to send those screenshots out and report them we haven't really been sending out the screenshots too much because the people that are actually doing those revenues over 30k plus typically then want to check the dashboards to see how the store is doing because it's actually like a high for them. So I think that they're, uh, when we communicate those law or communicate the, the dashboards already, they at least go see it at least once, maybe twice. Uh, it's not like an internal dashboard. It's actually just a software called triple whale that we use. Um, and then we have some internal KPI sheets that we use as well that correlate to it. And I'm a big fan of like processes and systems, which you guys sound like you have nailed down really well. Like of that checklist that you guys are, are taking people through, like, can you walk through at least a little bit of like what that looks like so I can get a better idea? Because I'm just curious for my own, like yeah. literally curiosity's sake. It, once they submit the onboarding form, it, it, like, are you having one person do the entire thing or do you have multiple people, almost like a Ford assembly line doing multiple things? It's a Ford assembly line. So the first things first is it's typically like the CSM role, if that's how you want to call it. We call them brand managers. Uh, there's the initial stuff that they have to do in order to set up the account administratively. Most of the things are actually set up automatically with automations for drives and things like that. But just organizing how we want it to be done in Asana, uh, there's a few administrative tasks that happen in getting the account set up. Then there's the actual business side, which is from their LLC. We'll create all the emails, the PayPal's, and the other accounts that are associated with the administrative side of getting the store set up. Then it goes into the product research, the brand development, then the content creation process and getting the UGC and the influencers to create the content that we need. And then it goes into the creating of the social media accounts. So Facebook, TikTok, Instagram, et cetera. Uh, and that's also done by our team internally, all managed under our business managers and the different things that we have set up associated with that structure. And then it goes down to the launch process and then the sheets that are associated with that. So it's a conveyor belt that actually gets routed into different pods and different teams, um, but they're all done simul or all done in sequential order because you can't continue until you have the first side done, the next section done, the next one. So it's a progression model. What's the, uh, and I'll probably geek out a little bit because I, I just love systems. What's the, uh, like like project management tool that you guys are using? Asana. Asana? Yeah. Okay. And so is it's like, uh, this client comes in, here's the master template of this checklist, duplicate it for them. And then it's just like step-by-step, step, they walk exactly. through we all Duplicate it. it for them, follow the nomenclature, and then get everything done by certain due dates. So we have due dates on every single one of those tasks. And that helps us have the Gantt chart view of what the progression model is. Are we behind? And then inside of Asana, we've built all the dashboards of how many requests per department, per pod are overdue, are behind, or are currently down the chute. That way we can understand the workload of the progression of how the BD buyers are doing or how the uh, customer service managers are doing or even how the initial infrastructure is being built with our logistics team. Just that way we understand better uh, what their loads are like. And I think that was one of the biggest things that I learned is you have to understand your team's workload. You can't just you know have the system in your mind and expect them to do it and just adhere to it. There's a workload and a balance that they have to have for mental bandwidth to come up with creative ideas and things like that. So I've even just seen just from implementing a lot of systems and that's why I wanted to be on the podcast and get the V2 and get to work with you on things is because just from some of the systems that I've built out, I've seen two of our team members have 
tons of creativity and sharing awesome reports that aren't even prompted by me. She just wanted to go ahead and make them and actually provide better insight on where the stores are doing. And so just just those types of innovative ideas really offloads the, the team's mental bandwidth with systems. And that's why, uh, again, that we really focus on that. And do you guys have, because I, I know you're doing a lot of the sales calls as well. So like, who's in charge of making sure that these people aren't overwhelmed? Like, do you have either a COO or do you have uh, department heads that are able to manage those people inside? Like who, who's in charge of, for example, making sure that every, cause I know you said you have the CSM, but it's like, it's a CSM in charge of speaking with the influencers and what happens if they influence. So do you have like a client fulfillment director or what is so that? We have, like? we have 15 team members internally. Okay. So, uh, me, John and Kendall were the heads of the organization. So we'll do, you know, some of the front end stuff. Uh, John and Kendall typically focus on the back end. So with brand, Brands, with the angles of the marketing and that side of things. So I've been mainly front end. Now for our people internally, I've been the person that's actually been working with the people, um, helping them develop their personal, professional, financial goals, and then helping them kind of tailor plans to it. I get, I could probably do a lot better job of doing so just because of the time side. But uh, from that side, that's how we divvy up the front end and the back end. Then internally, we have media buying pods. So if you're not familiar with an agency, I'm sure with any deliverable service, you have the same type of structure, but they're called pods at an agency. So typically it has a media buyer, copywriter, brand manager, and basically just a mini agency as a group. And that's the team that works on a certain account. So we have three of those and we're expanding into a fourth one this quarter. Um, and so through that, uh, each one of those uh, pods has their own certain bandwidth, their own certain amount of clients that they manage that they handle. And as they're providing updates, it goes through one or two different customer service uh managers or brand managers to communicate those updates the content side is a different department so that's all distribution the content side we have a creative director and we have someone that handles specifically ugc and influencer marketing so she's the one that gets the content she'll create the uh, angles with the creative director on how we want to actually position the product and then also get all the formats that are needed for the media buying team to actually run the ads we have a video editing team that's been used in-house and actually external as well that's been working with us for two or three years. Great relationship with them. Uh, so they'll edit a lot of our content and that's how we have the conveyor belt going. Wow, I love it. And for the who's managing, do you have like one pod leader for each pod? How does that look like to actually manage the people inside the pod? Yeah, so that's primarily the management of that would be under Kendall, uh, the, all those pods that are happening. And then the angles and the tweaks and adjustments are creative director and John. But the, the brand uh, or the media buyers are responsible for understanding not just the ads, but also looking at the store itself, because we're not just going off of a revenue KPI, we're going off of a profit KPI. And those different tiers that we have in revenue, zero to 30, 30 to 80, 80 to 250, 250, 500, 500 to a million dollars a month, there's different KPIs and investments needed at each one. So they know when they hit the top echelon of $30,000, they should at least be at about 15 to 20% in profit margin because they've already validated the offer. Same thing with 30 to 80, the higher up you go typically in that spectrum, that's typically when you see the margins balance out again to about 15 to 20%. Whereas you're pushing that scale, and you know, because you run a bunch of ads, as you're pushing the scale, uh, typically the profit margins will dip a little bit. And so you just see uh, those different levels that clients can sustain. And that's how their KPIs are now to be reported. And we're even improving on how that system's done too. Yeah, man, I love I love everything you guys are doing with it. And like, I can already tell, you know, I probably wish I bought my first store from you guys, because I can tell you guys have about 10 million times more the systems and frameworks than most of these guys out there, which I really respect that you guys have that in place. I want to kind of rapid fire uh, to wrap this up a little bit with some questions that I think would be cool for people that are uh, in a similar journey or in the online world, because you have experience uh, with info products, you have experience uh, uh, with ads on multiple platforms, you have experience with systems and sales. And so I think it'd be cool to maybe answer 
answer some questions that people have. Is that cool with you? Yeah, totally. So like uh, you mentioned influencer marketing. I know that's kind of something that's pretty big right now. Uh, how does that play in your journey of you guys scaling brands? Is it like in the very beginning, there's no cold ads, it's just influencer marketing with UGC and that's user generated content just for people who don't know, UGC content and then it's ads? Is it like in the beginning, you're blending both of them together? What does that look like? So there's levels to influencer marketing. So obviously if you're gonna do a Kim Kardashian post, that's way down the road, that's a huge campaign. There's a lot of planning that happens with that. And we've have participated in some of those campaigns with bigger brands as well. So it's really cool to see all that come together. But when you're first starting out, typically we start with UGC because that's identifying the product market fit and it's not just getting a random influencer to do it it's how is that person going to meet the person where they're at in their buying cycle how do they connect based off of race gender you know color etc how do we actually bridge that gap and then create the angle around it so we first source the talent and we create the UGC around that and that's typically uh, you know where most brands should start out because the content is very direct responsy. Uh, it's a reviews, it's product demos, and when you mash that up together, that's what allows that narrative to build trust as well as just show what people are missing out on. So that's the first step with UGC. As you get bigger and bigger and bigger, you wanna have each customer persona. Uh, so whether it's you know African-Americans from 30 to 40, then you know teenagers that are this demographic, you, know, you wanna have those different people lined up and then create campaigns for each one of those with the copies, with the messaging, and actually uh, basically route everything based off of different URLs that they hit. So then we create the different segmented uh, UGC that's actually for different niches as we go expand into a certain market. Um, and then lastly is product seeding uh, with the UGC. So we can get 150, 250 videos product seeded into TikTok. So when someone searches for the brand organically, not only do they see the page, not only do they see the content that we're posting, but it's also all the search results for the videos, they're there. So they may have 150 views, 7,000 views, 400 views, but it still provides legitimacy that we're actually providing or pushing out that content around that product. And so those are the different tiers and really those all require investments. So when I was saying zero to 30, 30 to 80, 80 to 250, um, those are the progressions. You first start out zero to 30 with that UGC, then you go different attach those different markets, typically 30 to 80 and 80 to 250. And then as you're pushing higher into the 80 to 250 per month, that's when you want to do the product seeding because social is always going to push search. So they'll search in TikTok or their search on Google. And so you want to have the content native in there. Yeah. Uh, to unpack that a little bit more, I think this is really valuable. You know, no matter what, if you're in e-commerce or you're just because influencer marketing UGC content is, I think, it's already here. It's not the wave of the future, but like UGC content is incredible and converts higher than stock videos or whatever they have. So first of all, where are you finding, like when you guys have a brand new brand, let's say it's selling a coffee mug or something along those lines, where do you guys find the influencers uh, in the first place? And like, what's that system look like around that? Yeah. So over the past two years, we've worked with a lot of different influencers. So some of them are just in our Rolodex and we're just able to say, Hey, here's a new product. It fits your, you know, not only your morals and your values, but also it would actually connect with the audience. So we lined that up pretty well, but if we need to source new creators, there's tons of different platforms out there and even organically through TikTok, you can send DMs and messages. So our person that's responsible for that, she'll use platforms like, uh, you know, Bilio to source creators. Sometimes she'll use platforms like Incense or she uses other platforms. We don't order off of Bilio or anything. We're just finding the creators. And then we negotiate of how we want the angle to be constructed um, because we don't need the editing. We just need the raw content so that we, we can edit it the way that we want it. And even if we do a mass spread of UGC, you can still use that differently. Meaning that if I get 50 different videos from influencers and four of them are good, the audio is good, the lighting is good, whatever. The rest of the videos we can still mash up to actually show usability and trust and likability, um, just framing it differently. And that's 
all in the video editing process. And so raw content's not hard to get. It's just how are they going to be framed and what's the final deliverable that we focus on. And are you giving the, I think you mentioned it really briefly. Are you telling the influencers, this is the angle that I want you to attack on this video? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. If you just let them do raw, most influencers that are in this space, um, there's two ways to do it. One, you can give them just the brand guidelines and they free for all because they create content. That's what they do. They're content creators. Or you have to script it out and make sure that they hit certain points or just certain ways that the brand wants to be positioned. So in skincare, that's a that's a niche that I've had tremendous success in with working with a lot of clients. It's you want to make sure that you hit the pain points of uh, that t- that particular pain point of what that guy or that girl is going through. So Disco does it actually really well right now with dark circles with men. They have a product that is just going viral right now because they're specifically targeting that exact problem with the male demographic that they, they want to address. With uh, one of the skincares that I marketed, it was an African-American focused niche. And so all of our UGC was women, African-American uh, people that were having dark spots or having troubles with acne. They tried all the mainstream products, but it didn't work because it wasn't built for my skin. And so we nar- narrowed down on that audience and it actually really worked well. Not only the product, but also the ads because it's curating specifically to their problem. And so when we look at UGC, it's that's why it's identifying how it's going to be positioned to them and if it aligns with the creator's values. And what are some of the returns that you're seeing on this UGC content? Like, because I like, and don't like not the highest, like, yeah. but just like, what's the average so that people can get an understanding of, hey, maybe I should start here instead of starting to run ads. Well, I think it's important before you go over returns, it's understanding where does that fit into the whole marketing spectrum? You have direct response marketing, and then you have brand and Coca-Cola will spend millions of dollars on a polar bear just to be top of mind, right? And then you have the performance or the, excuse me, the uh, direct response type of marketing where it's, uh, you know, if you look at eugenics, it's like, hey, are you a guy that has low T buy this product? That's basically their ad, right? And then you have the middle, which is performance based. And that's a blend between brand and direct response. And so in the beginning, you want to start out with direct response because you care about conversions, right? You care about, you know, getting some money back. And so that's typically where we're testing out the different angles of scripts. Now, UGC is not like the secret sauce that creates crazy returns. It's standard. Like you need it in your Rolodex. And then as that is the main creative that pushes a lot of the engagement and gets a lot more interaction, you can layer in more brand and more direct response that's specifically on hitting on the pain point of, you know, I had this dark circle, now it's gone, give it a shot. And it's a three second clip on bottom of funnel retargeting. UGC typically is that, uh, that driver on, on top of funnel in the beginning. And then it may transcend to down more to middle of the funnel and bottom of funnel. If you have brand videos like demonstrations or a dollar shave club type video that just goes viral because it's hilarious, right? But you definitely want to start out with UGC and more direct response. And then you have a blend of performance as you continue to progress and have more money coming in to buy brand videos. And are you uh, sending the UGC content for individual creators to specific sales pages that have modeling, whatever that ad angle that creator created is? That's with typically bigger mass scale brands that I've worked with. We've done those hyper targeted type of campaigns um, just because it requires so much build out, so much segmentation in different audiences and and, and Facebook and other platforms, as well as the email marketing sequences and SMS sequences. It all has to tie in. Now, typically what we would do for things like that is bundling on collections. So if you've visited the acne kit page um, and or the glow kit page, for example, that was one of the brands that I did. Those are two different personas, very similar products, but two different stages of their acne cycle. And so that's how we divided it instead of trying to do it based off of every race that we go after. Because I think after a point in time, like you can only go so wide um, or so uh, wide with all your funnels. Sure. Uh, I think you do have to consolidate and at least test with the data. And so uh, what we do is we build out the landing pages and the home pages um, and product pages all to be directly uh, responding to 
we actually built, sorry, we built out all those pages specifically to have the direct response uh, nature inside the landing page. Um, so it's all a product description. It's just the way that they're showcased in the product pages uh, that allow us to initially start. We don't go super wide unless they're doing, you know, multiple six figures a month and doesn't even make sense to do so until you hit seven figures to do all those niches and all those different markets. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't even exhaust out like one niche or one offer, one angle, and they'll just like all of a sudden do 15, 20 different ones and then tracking all of it and understanding what's working, what's not working. And then your budget is like spread across 15 different things. Yeah, if you're spread across too thin, then you can't even get the data back that you need to to hit certain impressions, certain KPIs with CTRs or even other video view rates. Like you don't even have enough data to make great assumptions. Now, one thing that is, is super important that we monitor as well are those audience sizes. So you're talking about different segments and different pages. So if we segment the two traffic pages and uh, we see a huge spike in one, then we know to actually make more bottom of funnel retargeting content for that audience because it had a huge spike. Or if that engagement is on Instagram and has a huge spike. We monitor that and I think we can do a better job of doing that at mass scale. But when you're in the accounts, it's part of our jobs of what our media buyers are supposed to do is to monitor that data and see the arbitrage of where we can get cheap traffic with that spike in engagement. So final two questions for you. And that was awesome. Thanks for walking me through all of that. The first one is, what is like one of the biggest mistakes that you see someone who is trying to scale their brand? And I think we've talked a lot about the like finding the product market fit zero to 30 grand on a specific product. Like, but then the transition from like a drop shipping product at zero to 30 grand to a brand that's multiple six or even seven figures. Like what's one of the biggest mistakes that you see people keeping them from hitting that? Investing into content. Interesting. Not understanding the importance of brand and I used to even shoulder it off a little bit like brand doesn't matter. I just want to have the direct response side because that's what was generating the results at the agency that was generating the results for lead gen. It wasn't building brand. And I think if you're great at dropshipping or if you have a dropshipping skill set, you can do brand like the the payoff's going to be like way bigger in the long run. Gary Vee even talks about that, that you have the skill set to do it. But sometimes people get comfortable in sitting with the drop shipping of what's working now. And they think sometimes when you're running ads, you don't want to touch anything because it's working. Don't, you know, don't break it. Don't try and switch up the angle just because uh, you have the ability to do it doesn't mean that you should. And so brand, you know, as you transcend, it also depends on what the competition is like in that market. So, for example, one of our brands that we're managing right now just got a $40 million capital raise that we were both scaling at the same time. They just got that capital raise like two months ago. And so it's even the opportunity of where you can create brand. And so I think that the people that are trying to transcend brand haven't necessarily identified what their brand should be. It's not the logo. It's not the mission statement. It's where is it going to fit in and how are you going to take different market share? And that's where I think that when you look at people that transcend from dropshipping to brand, they proved out the model, they have the purchase data, they have the customers, but now it's how are we going to position to the market and what sectors are we going to go after? And I think that's where people don't do enough research. They just create the logo and they make it all look nice. They may buy a bunch of inventory and product. And they're like, here we go. And it's not fully hitting because they probably were probably more profitable at dropshipping if they just did that and they didn't do the additional research that was needed to shift their perspective and thinking. So uh, one more question before I dive into my final one, because I think that was a good point, but obviously everyone uses, throws around the two big words, content and brand. But like, you, let's say I'm gonna give you a specific scenario. I'm at $30,000 a month, let's just say coffee mugs, because one's in front of me right now. And like, I can't break past that. And I'm like, man, I really wanna start building quote unquote a brand, I need to work on my content. What are like some specific things that you guys do? Because you have that checklist, right? So how do you, tr how do you start transcending from from this one-off product to a full brand that eventually could potentially be exited? Well, I think if you're selling coffee mugs, you're already capped. 
right? So it also depends on the product that you have and how you can build perceived value. And so I think there is a volume constraint with certain products that not all products and companies are built to hit 250 grand per month. Like even some of the stores that we have, they're not all built to do that because there's different sectors, there's timing, there's there's a lot of other things that go into it. And so I think if you're selling a mass market product, then you're having to figure out how you can differentiate between that and Amazon. And that's where the DDC side helps build perceived value. Now you can still have a mass market product, but you just have to invest a lot into content and iteration. So there's companies out there that will sell the scratch, you know, thing on for cars, like the stick that yeah. gets rid of the scratches, and they're selling it through social media because they ha- they get the product so cheap. But they invest solely into content, and they have like I've seen the dashboards, 950 different videos of how they're positioning, and they're going very, very wide as we talked about with segmented targeting. But they have the means to do that, and they know that the margins are built in volume. So sometimes those games that you see that are you know the big brands that are selling a lot, they're not really making a lot on the front end because they're getting just customer data or they're just validating their offer. And so it's sometimes it's hard as an entrepreneur when you see those big brands and you're like, I just want to be like these guys. Well, there's a huge gap, and they're able to do the cheap advertising or the cheap product because they have enough margin or they have a great lifetime value enough to scale it out. But if you're stuck at zero to 30K, what you really got to look at is, is this product going to be able to be differentiated if I go to other platforms? Can I even afford to run Google ads if I push hard through search? Because search is, or social is always going to push search. So can I even afford that with the margins? A lot of people don't think about the unit economics associated with the product. So for example, most of our products have anywhere between a four to 12X margin on the product. The particular brand that I'm talking about that has scaled is now doing about 2.6 million a year as a run rate. Uh, they uh, were able to have not only a sector that they were able to identify um, in their market product fit niche in the medical space, but that can that product is glasses and it can also go to other different niches. And so you can go wider with market, you can compress in market, um, and even have value uh, arbitrage inside of it. Now, another thing that people can do if you're stuck at a certain point, create a knockoff brand underneath your brand and list that onto Amazon. That way it doesn't destroy the brand value that you're building in another company. So there's a lot of different ways that you can do arbitrage in that uh, to help perceive value. And I think one of my mentors, Josh, now I'm actually good friends with him. He talked about it in which he has oral, uh, he has uh, snow teeth whitening. Not everyone's going to buy that $500 product that's premium, right? But what he can do is create a ventures company and aggregate all the uh, teeth whitening companies and toothbrush companies underneath it because not everyone's going to buy the $500 product, but they might buy the Amazon product that's 12 bucks that he can buy that business. And now he has that customer stream. And so it's looking at even demographics of customers and their buying behavior differently. I love that. Yeah, that was super helpful. And I think that's even helpful for us, uh, like as we're uh, transcending our own brand and uh, our, our creative department. I know when you said not spending enough on content, my creative director back here was uh, really nodding his head on that. So we'll probably have a conversation. Thanks a lot. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> so final question for you. I asked this for every single guest in here and we kind of touched on it a little bit earlier, but like what was one of the biggest decisions you made in the business that you run currently that eliminated all other decisions? Like what was one thing that you just one day said, this is what we're going to do. And it simplified massive amounts inside your business. That's a great question. And I think it all starts with the framing of where is the uh, third party risk when you're an agency, or let's just take it back even to finances, because I, I love the financial markets and stuff. Uh, Michael Saylor, we even talk about if I give my custody of Bitcoin to a different company, I'm now relying on that company. If that company lends it out to the next company, the risks are so removed from me that I'm trusting not only this party, but also this party. So you're third tiered removed. Now, the most the person that has the most risk is the owner, right? 
But in agency world, the person that typically has the most risk if you're building up your agency is the agency owner, not the brand, because the agency owner has to hire not only the copywriters, but the email marketers has to build out a whole marketing department basically for that company, right? And so the different tiers of pricing associated with that can cover it. But what we ran into was we were building out data. We were building out infrastructure for the businesses when we were supposed to just be an advertising agency. And we didn't have any upside in the brand. So when we would negotiate about equity, we would negotiate about different rates. They just wanted an agency that would cram down on pricing or not get too expensive. We've had rev shares that pay us out 30, 80 grand per month. And they were just like, that's way too expensive. We can't do that at scale. But we attributed their growth. So what made it really, uh, you know, really click for me was when we saw that all of our efforts were pushing revenue out the door instead of up to us, like that, that shouldn't fly. We're way too skilled. We've done this so many times. We need to flip the model. So now we have a portfolio, same operations, obviously enhancements and changes, but instead of the counterparty risk being uh, on us, not only building the agency and having the teams and just having this brand, you know, pay us a, a nominal fee to build all this infrastructure out, we just take the infrastructure, put it ourselves, and now we're incentivized to continue to grow. And we also put our money where our mouth is with our profit splits and how we actually want to grow the business. Revenues come up and we're more aligned with the incentives of the risk that we were already taking on in the beginning. And it took me a while to figure that out because you know, the courses that I went through were all just agency, just get clients and kind of sit at maybe 80 to 250 per month and just sit there um, and wait on the recurring to come in. But the bigger play has always been equity. I've always wanted to do agency or uh, e-commerce brand acquisitions, but operators are in the way or different infrastructures are in the way to really completely fill that out. Um, so we just wanted to farm these brands ourselves and go direct to the investor with a direct-to-consumer brand and actually make it more of a cohesive solution because everyone wants a Shopify store. But the barrier to entry of marketing, the barrier to entry of all those teams that we had to build out is expensive to build out. We would get six-figure contracts just to run the marketing for people. But at the end of the day, it wasn't the big upside that we were even generating for clients. And we wanted to flip that. Wow. So, yeah, that's an awesome answer, man. And that's uh, pretty in-depth. And obviously, just really quickly, so I'm curious about it, like, what was that? Was there something that you read or just one day like you had someone come back to you and they were fighting with you with like the pricing? Like what was that catalyst of like, we need to totally redo the way that we're doing this? Currently? We had six clients that after we had scaled had left for different reasons, too expensive. Uh, one of them even wanted to shut down the business after we helped them generate an extra $4 million in revenue in seven months, which doesn't make any sense. Um, we even wanted to actually buy that business. We put an offer on it. They denied it. So just different things like that. We were tired of working with operators that didn't know what they didn't know. And it's not their fault that they didn't know that next level of scale or that they were scared. Uh, we've seen that level of scale before. I've seen it with you know the agency clients that I worked with when I was working for Grant. I've seen it with the brands that I've worked with, even the publicly traded companies I work with. They operate and move differently. And so typically the brand owner is just always in the way and there's some sort of ego. And even I have an ego to an extent. I try and kill that thing as much as possible. But I think that's it's more of a people thing than it is a business and operations thing at the end of the day. Yeah, I think that's awesome. And I think that uh, it's funny. I, I asked you that question and you knew immediately what that catalyst was. And I think that like I have that in my business. And I think most entrepreneurs that have shifted and transcended what the masses are doing inside their industry, there's like that catalyst moment where you're like, all right, if I continue down this path, 
I'm going to kill myself. So I have to figure out something else that uh, that works. And you guys obviously nailed it. Robin, incredible interview, my man. Thank you so much for uh, all the insight on here. I honestly learned quite a bit and I took a good bit of notes. I hope people listening to the exact same thing. People want to learn more about you, maybe more about the D2C brand. Maybe they have one. Maybe they want help creating one. Like what's the best place you want to send people to to learn more about you? Yeah, you can just visit my Instagram, the Robert J. Miller. Shoot me a DM or all the links are in the bio that you want to hit us up and there's some call to actions there. So you can just hit me up and we have a chat conversation. Awesome, man. I appreciate you coming through and I will see you guys in the next episode.